God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Keith Giles is our very first returning guest to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Once again, Keith is a former pastor who abandoned the pulpit to follow Jesus. He's one of the three co-hosts of the Heretic Happy Hour Podcast, a blogger with Pathios, and the author of several important books, such as Jesus Untangled, Jesus Unbound, and the forthcoming Jesus Unveiled, all published by Guire. Keith, brother, welcome back to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Oh, it's my honor to, to do this. Thank you for having me back again, Jason. Um, love talking to you. Well, I love talking to you as well, and I know that uh, what you have to say is valuable to everybody who can listen to it, and so we're really grateful to have your time here this morning. Uh, tell us about the book, Jesus Unbound. How did that book come into being? Why did you write it? Well, um, it was after I'd written Jesus Untangled, and some of the ideas, there, there's a chapter in Jesus Untangled, like I think the second chapter, uh, where I talk about something called basically the different, different perspectives of approaching the Bible. One, one of them being the flat Bible perspective, which is the one that I grew up with, and I didn't think there was any other way to even think of the Bible, was the flat Bible perspective, which is the perspective that the Bible is one single book with one single voice, and, you know, uh, all of it. You know, anything in, in Moses or the Old Testament has just as much weight as anything in the New Testament or Jesus um, or the apostles. And that's the flat, flat Bible approach. And that's what I grew up with. Well, then I came across uh, another way of looking at the scriptures when I was doing some research on the Anabaptists and the early Christians. Um, and I realized that their perspective was slightly different. They took a Jesus-centric approach to, to the entire Bible. And as I understood what they were doing and why they were doing it, I realized, oh, I think that makes a whole lot more sense and it solves a whole lot of problems that I was dealing with in my own struggle with trying to understand the Bible. So uh, again, I touched on it in Jesus Untangled. It was one chapter, but I had so many questions about it. I was like, okay, I need to expand this into an entire book and talk about what is the Bible? What's our relationship to the scripture? Um, and really like the subtitle for Jesus Unbound is liberating the Word of God from the Bible and really trying to help Christians understand that the Word of God isn't a book. Uh, the Word of God is a person, uh, that it's Christ, and um, that the purpose of the Bible is to point us to Christ. Um, but we, we shouldn't be focused too much, and I think I've seen this, where Christians are focused way, way too much on the book, almost to the point of worshiping the book, like the, you know, the third person of the Trinity, uh, the, Father, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. Um, and recognizing that, it, whereas the book, the Bible is great, I'm so glad we have it, I love it, I study it all the time, um, that the Bible itself uh, isn't the end game, that the, what the Bible exists is to point us to a person and to a relationship, and that that's what really counts, and that's what really we should be uh, experiencing, is a, is a connection and an ongoing relationship with God through Christ. Yeah, one of the things that I love the most about this book was you start off by making it clear you're not here to bash the Bible. I think the first chapter is actually called Why I Love the Bible. Yep. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Because whenever you bring these these kind of subjects up, you're immediately going to get pushback as of he doesn't believe in inerrancy. He is against the Bible. He thinks we should throw our Bibles away. So in your view, what is the Bible and what is its proper role in the life of a follower of Jesus? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So, as I said, uh, my my perspective on the Bible had shifted a little bit. Um, I went from seeing the Bible as, again, one single book that's sort of like, you know, the title is 
Holy Bible and the author is God. Um, and recognizing that actually the Bible is something that we wrote. Like people wrote the Bible uh, and different people over a long period of time. And then also recognizing that um, there's a lot of even disagreement on certain subjects um, by certain authors within uh, the Bible. And that that's okay, that it's intended to be, in fact, the, the Jewish people understand about their own scriptures, uh, that this is sort of a dialogue, that it's meant to be um, a collection of different perspectives about God that different people have had. And it's okay to recognize that maybe Moses says something over here, that, but then Isaiah sort of says something a little bit different over there, and then Hosea says something slightly different, and then David says something else about it, and then that's okay. We're meant to notice that and recognize that and wrestle that out. Um, and, and so that that's one thing. That's one different approach. Um, but one thing that I, I say is that the – well, actually, I stole it from Brian Zahn. Brian Zahn says that the thing that the Bible does inherently – uh, and infallibly is point us to Christ. And so that was the shift for me, was recognizing that my relationship to the Bible um, was meant to be to, to, to really see the Bible through the lens of Christ. Uh, and I think once we can do that, then now we can fully understand. And by the way, this is what Jesus says. This is what the Paul, Paul the Apostle says. The early church fathers, this is the way they read the scriptures. Again, always starting with Christ, unknowing him, abiding in him, understanding him, learning to hear, as it were, the voice of the good shepherd. Um, and then once we've done that, then we can more clearly see and understand uh, the scriptures. Like, this is why Paul says, uh, he says, you know, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their eyes, and only in Christ is the veil removed. Which again, is is exactly what I'm saying, that it, if we attempt to read and understand the scriptures apart from uh, a, you know, beginning with a connection uh, and an, an abiding relationship with Christ, we are going to read the Old Testament scriptures especially, and we're going to misunderstand it. We're not going to get it. Because Jesus, one of the things that we're told in the Gospel of John is that no one has ever seen God at any time except for Jesus. And the, the one of the reasons he came was to reveal the Father to us, which meant that before Christ, we didn't have a clear picture of who God really was. This is, again, over and over and over again. Jesus says to us, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, um, which means that until we've seen Jesus, we haven't seen the Father. Right. You know, I've, I've heard Christians yelling at each other uh, when the subject of inerrancy comes up, that if you don't believe that the Bible is perfect and inerrant, then you're not a Christian, that you cannot go to heaven, that you're not following Jesus. How did we get so wrapped up in this bibliolatry of inerrancy? Wow. Well, um, <clears throat> I think, again, Brian Zahn, uh, who also wrote the foreword to Jesus Unbound, you know, he, he talks about this a little bit in his foreword, um, about how when at the Reformation, you know, when Protestants broke away from the Catholic Church, that the Catholics, you know, what they kept, he talks about it like a sort of a divorce, right? And uh, that when there's a divorce, you know, the, the husband gets, you know, maybe he gets the dog, and the car and the wife gets the house and, you know, whatever, uh, the, the furniture. So in, in this sort of great divorce that happened at the Reformation, the, the Catholics kept, you know, uh, this great tradition and the, this apostolic succession and, and all these kind of things that, they, you know, that, that, that 
up to that point, and that really all the Protestants got out of the out of the divorce was the Bible. And so because of that, because Protestants are left with pretty much only the Bible, they kind of made much more of the Bible than they should have. Um, again, like I, I say all the time, the Bible never points us to the Bible. This is a key thing that I think we miss. The Bible never points to itself. The Bible never drives us back to the Bible. The Bible always points us to Christ. And that's the mistake we make. If we allow the Bible to be the focus as if the Bible is what it's all about. And, I, and I've been in these conversations, Jason, like you're talking about, mostly online uh, with Christians who will basically say, yeah, if you don't accept that the Bible is inerrant and infallible, um, that nothing is, you know, that and here's what they, even what they mean by that. Here's the problem with saying that. Again, you can only say that the Bible is inerrant and infallible if what you mean, again, is the Bible has one author, which is God, and that the Bible is, is um, univocal, uh, when it comes to all these topics. And if you assume that, <clears throat> then you would have to assume that, of course, God, if he's the one saying everything and God has only one opinion on everything, then in the Bible, God will not contradict himself. However, if anyone has ever actually read and studied the Bible, you come across all kinds of contradictions and questions about, wait a minute, it says this here, but over here in this other book, it says something else. Exactly. So what I'm saying is let's just be honest about the fact that the Bible uh, is written by many different voices, many different people who are doing their best to express their experience of God. But again, also understand that um, some of those are going to have be slightly different, that the way any person's experience of God or understanding of God is going to be different from another person's. Uh, but also understand that no one knows the Father as well as Jesus. Uh, and, and again, the New Testament affirms this over and over and over again, um, that Jesus is the one that we should start with. And so if we can do that, then, then I think we're in a much better place. This is what we I think what is intended. Um, again, the, the Mount of Transfiguration is a beautiful illustration of that, right? So here's, here's Peter, James, and John. They're with Jesus on the mountain, and suddenly Jesus is transfigured before them, and appearing with him is Moses and Elijah. And well, Moses is... Uh, to the Jewish people, Moses is the father of the law, and Elijah is the father of the prophets. So again, not a mistake. This is very intentional. Here's Jesus, and he's standing next to the, the law and the prophets. And Peter makes the mistake, which I think most flat Bible Christians make, of saying, oh, this is wonderful. Let's, let's elevate all three of you to an equal status. Let's build tabernacles, one for each of you, and we can have law, prophet, and Jesus, or the, you know, the Messiah. And the father's response to this is to remove the law and to remove the prophets and to leave only Jesus. And he says very clearly, this is my son. Listen to him. So we have, again, mm. I, I think there's no stronger um, argument for this than that. If, if you want to talk about the word of God, again, the word of God is a person. It's Christ. And again, please understand, we have to follow the progression, Right. So yes, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The reason the Word appeared was to reveal the Father to us because no one had ever seen God at any time. And then, then that same Word made flesh. Jesus says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. If you keep my commands, my Father and I will make our home in you. So where is the Word of God now? It's not on your shelf. It's not beside your bed with a bookmark in it. The Word of God is alive within you and available to you all the time. I say all the time to people that talk about the Bible as if the Bible 
is the word of God. I say, well, then if I, if I could destroy every Bible on the planet, have I then erased the word of God? Well, of course not. You know, I could take away your Bible right now, but you could still, I hope, and this is the point. If I took away your Bible right now and you had no access to any Bible at all, could you still hear the voice of God? Could you still know the word of God? Uh, yes. Gosh, I hope so. If, if you can't, then now that's why we have a problem. Because if the only way you know the voice of God, if the only way you know the word of God is by reading a book, then you haven't truly followed the book. Because what that book tells you is that you can hear his voice and uh, he will abide in you. And you have an anointing from him that remains and that he will never leave you or forsake you and on and on and on. Um, that's what the book says. So if we're going to be people of the book, I, I'm just encouraging us to actually follow through with all of the many messages that are in it that are, that are encouraging us over and over again to have an amazing experience with the living God. Um, it's like the, um, the other day I, I said something about how our loyalty to the book has made it so that the menu has become the meal and the, and the map has become the treasure. And that is a huge mistake. Mm. And again, that's what I'm trying to illustrate in this, in this book, Jesus Unbound. Don't let the menu become your meal and don't let the map become your treasure. Uh, the, this map is pointing you to something amazing, so much better. Uh, that menu is, is showing you something about an amazing meal that you need to experience it. Absolutely. I love that illustration so much because the the image of me walking into a Mexican restaurant, sitting down, finding some nachos that just look incredibly delicious, and then tearing the page <laughs> out and chewing it, that just so perfectly illustrates exactly what I and many other people have done for years. We've taken a book and made it a substitute for a relationship with a living person. Yes, and that's why I had to write this book, Jason. I just thought, because again, I've seen it. I, I, I've experienced it so many times. Um, and I was like, man, this, we're missing it, you know? We're really missing what it's supposed to be, all be about. So I, I, my hope is that people that read the book would, would recognize this and say, you know, by the end of the book, go, well, oh my gosh, this is right. I need to, I need to follow through with what the book is, where the book is sending me. Right? It, it, is a, it is a map that is pointing me to a treasure. Does the Bible itself even claim to be inerrant or infallible? Is that claim anywhere in Scripture? Uh, not that I've found, no. Um, I think, again, what, what the corrective that we're seeing, uh, certainly in the Gospel of John, when it talks about the Word of God was with God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that this Word is Christ. Um, I would encourage people to even, when they read the phrase Word of God, even in the Old Testament, to think of that as Jesus. Like it, because I think that's what they're trying to say to us, that any references to the word of God, it's meant to be uh, telling me something about Christ. As an example, one of the most famous Old Testament verses, right, is the one that says, where it says, God's word will not return to him void, but will accomplish everything it is intended. That's Christ. It's saying that Christ uh, is, is the word of God and he will accomplish everything, right? He will not return void. He will not return to the father void. That's exactly what he did, right? He says, and, and when he finishes his mission, he says, Father, I have done everything you called me to do. And on the cross, he says, it is finished. Mm. So those kind of things happen all the time where if we, if we read the phrase word of God and we think Bible, then we're missing it because we've been told very clearly many times over and over again that Jesus is the word of God. And we need to, when we read word of God, think Jesus. So you do, you know, yes, there's this verse, um, and I believe it's 2 Timothy, right, that says, um, 
that the uh, that the God's word is, you know, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just blanking on it. The uh, all scripture is God breathed. Thank you. All scripture is God breathed and useful uh, for teaching, instruction, rebuke, etc. And I agree with that statement. Uh, I think that is exactly right. Yes, all scripture is God breathed, and uh, and and it's all very useful for our instruction. But that statement doesn't say that the Bible is inerrant or infallible. Again, you were taking that way, way too far. And I, and I would also point out that the Greek for that for that passage there is it doesn't say like again your English Bible translates the word and it says scripture, right? Uh, however, that word is not the word. It's not the Greek word for scripture. That's a different word uh, that it uses instead. The word the word that is graphis, which is the the gener- generic word for writings. So um, I think it's uh, I'm, begin- I'm beginning to look at that verse, uh, that passage, and I think maybe a better way to understand that that verse is to think of it like this: any God breathed writings. Are, are valuable, right, for our instruction, for our, for our rebuke, for, our, for all these things, for our edification. So that means any writing, any writings that are God-breathed. Well, what are those? Well, I don't know. <laughs> they're, they're writings that when you read them, uh, you, you and your, you're in your spirit, the Holy Spirit within you recognizes them as, oh my gosh, this is inspired. God is wanting to teach me something here. God is wanting to show me something here. Um, and so, so it kind of opens it up. And I think actually that is what is intended there. Um, you know, this is why Paul, when he speaks to the, to the pagan idol worshiping people in, uh, in Athens, you know, in the book of Acts, he, he quotes their own writings to them to teach them something. Um, again, I think that what we need to understand, and this is, this is, again, has been a shift for me is what do we mean when we say something is inspired? So, uh, I think, for me, for example, uh, I use this example all the time, so I apologize. I've done this before, but, but I think it's a good example. If I'm driving in the car, I listen to the radio, and I hear a song by someone, and this song touches me deeply and speaks a beautiful truth to me, and I'm, I'm in tears, and I recognize, you know, God, you're speaking to me right now through the, through the lyrics of this song, and you're saying something to me that is healing and beautiful and encouraging. And I would say to somebody about that experience, I would say, that song was inspired, well, what if that person says to me, well, um, did God write that song? Well, no, God didn't write the song. Well, is that song inerrant or infallible? What are you talking about? Why would, I, why would you even ask me that? I mean, I, that's not the issue. The issue is, did God speak to me through that song? Yes, he did. And, and in that sense, that song was inspired. I'm talking the creator of the universe spoke to me through something. And in a powerful way that impacted my life. That, to me, is what the meaning of inspiration is. Um, and again, to say that something is inspired is not to say it's inerrant or infallible or that God wrote it. Uh, I think if we can grasp inspiration from that perspective, then it opens us up to the realization that God can and does use all kinds of things all the time. Music, art, nature, conversations with people over coffee, uh, you know, friends who, who say things to us and are just... It's such a beautiful moment at the right time and the right word, and it speaks exactly to our need. And we recognize, God, that was you. You're speaking to me right now through this person. Um, again, let's go back to that verse. All God-breathed writings are profitable for our instruction and rebuke. Absolutely, yes. And that's true of a song on the radio or a conversation with a friend or a walk in the, in the woods 
where I experience the presence of God in a powerful way. All of those things are inspired and all of those things are profitable for my my growth and my walk with Christ. Um, again, none of that says it's perfect and none of it says there's no mistakes. I, I love that view of inspiration. And I, I believe that's probably the the underlying foundation of the new Guire podcast, Bookish, The Canon Continues, is that there are bits of inspiration spread all around us for us to find. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think we sort of inspired them um, in that way. Yeah, to, to, to uh, recognize that God is still speaking. This is kind of the problem with the closing of the canon, right? When, um, when this council got together and said, okay, these are the books of the Bible, um, and, and essentially established this is the canon. These, these, are, these writings are from God, and these other writings are not. Uh, it, it had the unfortunate um, consequence of, of communicating the idea that God is finished speaking. Um, and I think that's so wrong. God is still—I mean, how can anyone read the writings of— I don't know, the sermons of John Chrysostom or the writings of A.W. Tozer or um, Leo Tolstoy or on and on and on. There's so many people, um, even today, you know, I read N.T. Wright or David Bentley Hart, and, I, and I still, I'm still hearing inspiration. I'm still hearing the voice of the Spirit through the writings of so many beautiful followers of Christ. Um, uh, the, the, in that sense, yes, the canon is continuing in the sense that God is still speaking. He's always speaking. He's never, ever stopped. Absolutely. And, and I think that that almost is the whole point of what Paul was trying to say, or the writer was trying to say with this God-breathed picture, because what else is God-breathed? Well, in the beginning, humanity is God-breathed. So maybe <laughs> exactly. the whole point was it's human in origin. It, it, it's God flowing through people. And again, as you said, I don't think he's specifically talking about what we now call the Bible, but it's human in origin. Maybe it's not that we have too low of an opinion of uh, holy sacred writings. Maybe it's that we have too low of opinion of, of humans yeah. and God's ability to speak through them. Uh, I remember one of the most transformational uh, encounters I've had with God. I was walking around the track at our gym and listening to Brad Jerzak and Jonathan Martin on, the, on Jonathan Martin's podcast and I just felt like the Spirit of God just like descended on me like waves of liquid love, you know? <laughs> and there was just an inspiration uh, just in his voice. And and I don't say that to lift up Brad Jerzak, who we both love, I know. Yeah, yeah. But that's just, it, it's human in origin. Those were Brad's words, but God was bringing it to life. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, man. That's so, that, I love that. Everything you just said right there, Jason, that was beautiful. That is right on. I think you're you're right. You're on to something. Because, yeah, in the beginning, we're God-breathed. Human beings are God-breathed. But that doesn't mean we're inerrant and infallible. Absolutely not. Of course not. But it, but, but it does mean, though, that because we are God-breathed creatures, we are capable of being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And certainly if we are abiding in Christ, even more so. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I think that is, you're right on in that. That's, that's a great, great observation. What happens when we come to this conclusion that maybe, we've, maybe we move out of the flat Bible perspective and we start seeing the Bible as more of, uh, you know, inspired rather than inerrant. How do we hold on to the view of Jesus presented in the Bible? The argument that I keep getting is, well, if you're, if you're going to say the Bible's not perfect, then how can you even trust the presentation of Jesus in the Gospels to know what God is like? Right. And that's good. And actually, in the, in the, in the, um, 
in Jesus Unbound, I approach that because I do spend, like you said, I start off talking about how much I love the Bible, but then I do eventually run into some, you know, I point out a few areas that there are some, you know, contradictions. There are differences of opinion in in um, in the scriptures, and then I then I spend a lot of time though talking about specifically the Gospels, because um, I think this is something, as you said, it's a it's a very important question for us. Because all right, if we're saying that um, not everything is perfect and not everything is that there maybe are some some mis- quote unquote mistakes or uh, factual things that are maybe off a little bit. Well, how can we trust anything, right? And I, I get that. And, and I'm certainly not ever wanting anybody to hear me talking or and I don't think you could read Jesus Unbound and come away with the, the idea that I'm saying uh, anything like that. Uh, but, what, but what I wanted to do, I did in chapter 12 of the book, I talk about uh, the Gospels being reliable. And the amazing thing is that the Gospels are incredibly reliable. Um, we, we know through many means, but, but one of them is linguistics. Uh, I heard a, a presentation by uh, this guy who's a who's a linguist, and he did this amazing presentation about how um, the writers of the Gospels know details. They know details about the the usages of names in the first century. They understand um, they understand the sort of the botany of the area that they're talking about, the kind of trees that grow there, the kind of uh, you know the the climate in different different cities that they're at. In other words, they, this had to have been written by someone who lived in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, in Palestine during the first century. Uh, so the argument that, well, no, whoever wrote the Gospels, it was done in Rome hundreds of years later. Someone made these things up. Well, the, the, his whole point is that that's impossible, that you would not have known the kinds of little, there's, there's little tiny details that if you were making your story up and you lived in a different country and you lived hundreds of years after the fact— you would not have gotten these kinds of small details correct. You would have only gotten them correct if, honestly, you weren't trying to get them correct. They were just automatic things for you, that you were just talking the way people talked at the time because you lived there, because you knew these things sort of by second nature. Um, Now, that doesn't mean, here again, we have to say um, that the Gospels themselves are perfectly in alignment. Because again, we we have four different people who are each giving their version of their experience of Christ, or sometimes some of them are admittedly giving it secondhand. You know, they themselves didn't uh, have the experience, but maybe they're they're talking to Peter or one of the other apostles. Um, and so again, with any human story, some of the some of the details are going to be slightly off. Like for example, my wife Wendy and I. We're right now reading through David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament, and we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew right now. And every chapter we read, we're, we have to stop and go, okay, wait a minute. Matthew mentions this part of the story here, but Luke mentions it's happening later. Or, you know, he this happens here, over there, but then he tells it again. So I don't think this happened twice. I think he's just bringing it up here again because it's relevant to the other thing that Jesus is saying. So, in other words, you have to be aware of those things happening. Um, the other thing about the Gospels is um, first century writers, it, it appears that they weren't as hung up on things like chronology as we are. So they're not trying to be reporters in the sense of saying like this happened and then this happened and then that happened. Now they do talk that way, which is kind of what makes it confusing because then they will say that. They'll say Jesus who did what here and then immediately this happened. 
Um, so it looks like that's what's happening. But if you lay the gospel side by side and you try and follow these things, these order of events, you recognize, well, they can't all be right. Jesus didn't do this three times, you know, in four different ways. Um, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. The point is that the stories they're relating are true stories. The, the encounters they're relating did happen. Um, there may be one of them's adding a detail, one of them's leaving out a detail. The point for us is that these things happened, that Jesus existed. He is a historical person, which even people like Bart Ehrman, uh, who's a very famous uh, atheist, uh, concedes just Jesus was a historical person who actually lived. Um, and the Gospels are great, very reliable documents for us. Keith, how do we make the transition once we realize that we've kind of built the whole house around the Bible instead of the person of Jesus? How do we make the transition from a Bible-centered Christian life to a Jesus-centered life? Yeah, thank you. That's that's great. That's key to everything. Um, well, I think, again, we have to start developing a relationship with Christ. I mean, that's the bottom line. I think, um, first of all, we have to acknowledge that that is possible. Uh, a lot of conversations I've had with people about this issue, usually the people that are on the sort of the biblicist end of the spectrum, unfortunately, many of them tend to, I mean, then they're being very honest. Like I, I had a conversation with a guy once who said that he said, Keith, I've never heard the voice of God. Uh, I've never heard the Holy Spirit speak to me ever. I have only encountered um, Christ by reading the Bible. Now, what I pointed out to this guy when he said this to me was, so what you're saying is that based on your experience of only experiencing Christ through reading the book, you've concluded that we can't have an experience of Christ. <laughs> so again, yes, based on someone's experience, if that's their experience, um, that they have only known Christ through reading the Bible, I would say, first of all, that's, that's okay. That's normal. I think with most of us, that's where we begin, right? We wouldn't, again, we would, we know things about Jesus by reading the gospels and reading the New Testament. But we have to move from that sort of baby step uh, part of the, of the process, that baby step phase of the process of learning things about Jesus. And now we need to do what the Bible, by the way, tells us to do, which is to know him to have an experience of him. And I think the way we do that is we, I mean, I would begin with the very simple thing of be still and know that I am God. I would say spend time in silence, uh, waiting on the Lord, um, develop a prayer life, meditate on, on the word of God. In other words, do things, take steps that move you towards um, listening to the voice of God, experiencing uh, the spirit. You know, God tells, tells us over and over again in the Bible uh, that he's not far away, that he, is, he will be found. Those that knock will find. Those that seek will find him. Um, you know, so he's not hiding, and he's, he's not intentionally, you know, uh, obscuring himself. He wants us to seek him. He wants us to hear his voice. That's his intention, to not even just hear his voice. He wants to come and live within us, and, and that his voice um, is something that, that resonates within us in a way that he's always with us, right? And we're always experienced. This is what the new covenant's all about, right? The promise of the new covenant is that God says, um, I will be your God and you will be my people and no one will inquire of their neighbors uh, to, to know of the Lord because they'll all know me. 
And so you know, people say, well, Keith, that's not, you know, that's not reality. That's not what's happening right now. No, it's not. But it's only, but it's possible. That's the whole point. Jesus is saying that when he, when he announces the new covenant, he's, he's making it possible that now if we want to, if we are interested in that, that is possible for us, that we can, each of us, know the Lord in a deep, intimate way. And um, so I would just encourage anybody who says, well, I, uh, again, I've never, I, know, I don't only, I only know anything about Christ because of the Bible. That's, that's a great place to start. But um, begin to move in the direction of seeking an experience with him. But, you know, start knocking, uh, start seeking, start searching, and he will be found. You know, it's his joy to reveal these himself to us. Um, you know, he, Jesus talks about it all the time. He says, you know, we, if your son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? And how much more will the father who loves to give good gifts to his children give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Um, that's, that's what his heart is. That's what it's all about. He's done all of these things in all of history to bring us nearer and nearer to himself. So I would just encourage people to step in that direction and, and to expect that they really can encounter uh, the living Christ. Absolutely. And the invitation's open. He uh, made it pretty clear in the Gospels when he said, you know, you you search the scriptures thinking in them that you'll find life, but you refuse to come to me who the scriptures testify of. That's right. And I think that was my story for so long. Uh, I, I believe that God was locked into the leather-bound pages of a Bible. And uh, man, it just robbed me of so much of the freshness of a relationship with God. Yeah. And he's still speaking, he's still talking, and uh, obviously your book is challenging us to see beyond the words on a page and experience him every day. And I love that about your book. Well, thank you. Several other authors like Rob Bell, Rachel Held Evans, and Pete Enns have written books about the Bible in the last couple of years. How is Jesus Unbound different? Wow. I honestly don't know. I've honestly not read all those books. I read Rob Bell's book about the Bible, and I really liked it. Um, I haven't read all of Rachel Held Evans' book, but what I did read of hers, I really, really liked. Um, and I haven't read, don't tell Pete, but I haven't read his book yet. Um, <laughs> but um, I, here's the thing. I think in, in essence, though, we're all trying to do the same thing, which is to, one, make sense of the Bible. Uh, and But two, I think we're all on the same on the same page in a sense, sorry, no pun intended. <laughs> I think we're all on the same page in the sense that we're wanting people to move beyond a head knowledge you know, move beyond the information phase of um, no quote unquote knowing God, but knowing Him in a in a more practical, real way. That's again, that's my heart. That's what I'm wanting people to understand. Um, that's my goal is to point people to a relationship and a, and a deeper connection with Jesus. That's why I called the book Jesus Unbound because you know, uh, you know the word the word was with God, the word was God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've been trying to put Him back into a book ever since. Mm-hmm. Like. But the reality is Jesus is not bound in the book. He's not. Like you said, you know, Jesus basically said there is no life in the Bible. Um, If you say that to the average Christian, they will freak out, right? Right, yeah. (laughs) There's no life in the Bible. All I'm doing is paraphrasing Jesus. He says there's no life in the Bible. But the Bible does point us to the one in whom our life is hidden, and that is Christ. So, um, again, I, I think that's, that's really what I'm trying to do. And um, I'm, I'm so glad there are many other books out there that are trying to help us make sense of, of the Bible. I, I really believe that it's, it's a great gift to his people that God has uh, allowed the scriptures to be written in such a way that we really can't find the spike, spark of life apart from him. 
Uh, we can't just pick up the book and find the life that, that he's calling us to. They inspire us to search out the life. It's digging for that treasure, the kingdom hidden in the world. Yep. Um, but uh, I think that's a great gift. God values community and he knows we need it. And so apart from that witness of the spirit. Anyway, Keith, thank you so much for this book and thank you for your time today. Uh, I love Jesus Unbound. I want to highly recommend it to everybody who's listening. If you haven't got a copy yet, please do. Uh, but Keith, when this podcast comes out on May the 6th, your next book will have just been released. I believe it comes out May 4th. Is that correct? That is right. Yeah, it's coming out May the 4th. So, and that one's called Jesus Unveiled? Yeah, that's called Jesus Unveiled. We're still uh, I'm sort of arm wrestling with my publisher over the subtitle, but if I have my way, it's going to be Jesus Unveiled, um, Forsaking Church as We Know It to Embrace Ecclesia as God Intended. And it's essentially my book about. Um, my experiences with the house church, the New Testament church, and I think the sort of the, um, I guess the summary of the, what the book is about is that, um, you know, what, what do we do when we realize that uh, church as we know it may not be the sort of community that God intended us to experience? And, and that's what I'm trying to get us to, to see. And it's what I've experienced over the last 11, 12 years of uh, being involved in an organic New Testament style church. Well, Keith, I'm really looking forward to that book and I can't wait for it to come out. Uh, I would love to have you back on in the future to discuss that book as well. Well, all right, let's do it. <laughs> Thank you for listening today. Once again, you can find Keith Giles at keithgiles.com. And I do want to put in another plug for his Patreon page at patreon.com slash Keith Giles. Invest in his work. He is one of the most prolific authors in the world today, and he's very accessible via social media. You'll find him, again, at KeithGiles.com, and I'm sure all of his contact information is there. Keith, thank you so much for being with us today. Jason, thank you. It's been a blessing and an honor. God bless. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.